Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and for those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, Through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Father, thank you for another morning. Thank you that the heavens declare your glory. And God, even though creation has been subjected to futility, they still reveal your greatness. And it's only the magnitude of a magnificent creator that can do that. So, Father, I thank you that from the beginning of the world, Jesus has been the plan. I thank you that you are central in all that we do and say and pray this morning. We would know you more. We would trust you deeper. We'd follow you harder. And we'd be more like Jesus from our time together. Lord, we love you and ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, my family and I come to you from Atlanta. I was serving on a church staff there. Um, I'm now curr- currently serving as the collegiate minister for the Baptist Collegiate Ministry for Winthrop and York Tech. And uh, while on staff at uh, the church I served at, one day I had a phone call from my pastor. And I hadn't been there very long. And uh, he called me because he uh, some church members had been engaged with a conversation uh, with this guy who had some really, uh, shall we say, off-center theology. This guy was a little bit screwy in the head. And uh, so uh, these church members were like, uh, man, this guy's saying some whacked out stuff, but we don't know how to answer him. And uh, that's the kind of thing that my pastor thrived on at the time. So he loved it. Uh, so they, they went and sat down with this guy. And a lot of the stuff the guy was saying, my pastor just answered him straight from the scripture. And it was nothing. I mean, it just like, okay, well, what about this? And he'd answer, okay, what about this? And so things were just kind of shutting down and things were great. And then this guy pulled out something on my pastor. And... It just kind of threw him for a loop for a second. The guy asked him, he said, How come you obey nine of the Ten Commandments? Do you kill anybody? No. Do you lie? No. Do you teach people they should lie? No, they shouldn't lie. Well, how come you don't keep the Sabbath? The pastor had to sit back for a second. As I guess most of us would have to do if somebody asked us, Why don't we keep the Sabbath? Some of y'all are like, what's a Sabbath? The rest of you are like, yeah, I always kind of wondered that, but I was afraid I'd look dumb if I asked it, so I'm not going to say anything. 
and uh, some of you just don't care. So I hope that this morning we'll be able to answer all of those and kind of bring it together. Because here's what he said. And he, he called me up. The reason I know about this is because he called me right after this. He said, all right, man, look, here's what happened. He told me. He said, and here's how I answered him. What, do you think I answered him right? You know, and he, he told him, he said, you know, we're no longer under the law. We are under the law of Christ. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Galatians 6, 2, we are under the law of Christ, the law of love. And so those nine commandments are ways that we show love, love to God and love to others. So I don't kill somebody because I love them. And because I love Jesus. So that somewhat sufficed, but the guy was still there and said, well, what do you do then with the Sabbath? And I think that's a question that a lot of us, if we're honest and we're searching through this, would have. What do we do with the Sabbath? And there really seems to be two options. The first option is, if, if you know what it is, and we're going to get to it, I'm going to explain this a little bit more. But the first option is, that's an Old Testament thing. That's back under the law. And so because it's under the law, we don't need to worry about it any longer. And in sense, in a sense, that is right. Because if you are in Christ, you will not face judgment for breaking God's Sabbath. Christ has taken all of your sin upon himself. And if you have repented and placed your faith in him, you no longer worry about facing judgment for your sins. And so in a sense, yes, we are in Christ and we don't have to worry about it. But... Let's think about this for a second. The commandment not to murder, for example. If you've been here for the past several weeks, Fudd's preaching through the book of Matthew. We show, saw how Jesus took the commandment of, of thou shalt not murder and took it even deeper. Plunged it deeper into the heart of God, into our hearts to show that it's not just about taking a life. It's, it's even deeper. It's about hatred. And we don't look at thou shalt not murder and say, it's no big deal. I can go kill somebody because Jesus died on the cross for me. And God's not going to judge me for it. So that drives me to think there's got to be something more about the Sabbath than just it's part of the law and I don't need to worry about it anymore. And so that's my hopes this morning. My hopes this morning is that we would really be able to take this and see that it's part of such a bigger picture that's beyond one day that people in the Old Testament were told not to work. So here, here's what I'd like to do this morning in our time together. It's my prayer that God would grant me the privilege to do this. I want us to back up, take a look in the Old Testament about this teaching of Sabbath. We'll get a foundation, see where it comes from. And then what I would like to do is move in to Hebrews chapter 4, and let's see how the author of Hebrews unpacks Sabbath so that we understand it deeper. And then I hope in the end that we'll be able to take this and see how this applies to us as Christians today. So here we go, background. And, and I want to give you, uh, just tell you a little bit. I, I personally am like FUD. I like, I like preaching through books of the Bible, you know, starting in one one and going all the way through the end. So picking up in the middle of a book is a little bit difficult for me at times. So I hope not to give you too much background, but then not to give you too little that you don't understand where we are. So the idea of Sabbath, Sabbath comes from the Old Testament. It is, it's the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to rest or to cease. Now, in the beginning, just, it's just a word. It's just Shabbat, to rest or to cease. There's nothing special about it. What happened when it became special is when God attached special meaning to the word. So what we look at is that in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So here in Genesis 2, before the fall of man, before sin has entered the world, God has made everything in six days and then on the seventh day he rested. And he made the day holy because he rested. And that's really all the information that we're given. Fast forward now to the book of Exodus. So much happens in Genesis. In Exodus, the people are in slavery. God redeems them from slavery from Egypt, bringing them to the promised land, and we get the famous Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Here we have God attaching this term, this term rest, this, this ceasing, to a very specific day, the seventh day of the week. It is now called the day of rest, the Shabbat. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So what God has done here now is he's given these Ten Commandments and he is saying, now you saw that God rested on the seventh day and part of the Ten Commandments now is when you come to this Sabbath day, the one that God has set apart, the one that he has set as holy, you now are to be like him and on that seventh day you are to rest. If you fast forward to the book of Deuteronomy... The Ten Commandments are given a second time. Moses, Deuteronomy is kind of like Moses' last sermon. If you think Fudd preaches a long time, you should read all of Deuteronomy in one setting. It's a long sermon, okay? So Moses, like it's like the last hurrah. They're about to go into the promised land. Moses is not going. He's reminding them of all that God has done, all that God has commanded. And here Moses repeats again the Ten Commandments. But here's something that's interesting. When Moses gives the Ten Commandments again, we find something very special added right to the day four, I mean the fourth commandment. Moses says this, he's talking about the Sabbath, almost everything's exactly the same. Under the influence of the Spirit, he adds this, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So now we we see this progression of understanding of what the Sabbath is about. It's not simply a day of rest, It's not simply a command. It is a day of rest commanded, and a large portion of this is to remember what God has done. So so here's what we've got. God God has set time and place. He set a specific day, and He says, you take this day and you rest. But don't just rest. Rest and think about what I have done for you. Here's the problem. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but we're sinful. So were the Israelites. So what happens is when we hear a command, our sinful hearts go the other direction. And so then the entire rest of the New Old Testament, as you're seeing God send His prophets, as you're seeing things happen over and over again, God is coming against the people and He's saying, you're profaning my Sabbaths. You aren't keeping them. You're not doing right. In Numbers chapter 15, there's a dude who's stoned because he's out picking up sticks right after God gives the command not to keep the Sabbath. There's all of these things. And so God has obviously attached a great importance to this day. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel chapter 20. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Then we skip down to verse 15. 
Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. For their hearts went after their idols. My question is, if God has spent all of this time setting this thing up and then gets righteously angry when they break it, it must be for more than just the law. Now fast forward to the New Testament. What you find in the New Testament is that the Pharisees have gone the opposite direction. They're worried about people breaking the Sabbath. They saw that God's judgment came for it. So what they did was added extra rules, which is just what we need, right? Our sinful hearts love rules because then we feel like if we keep them, we've done something great. So what they did is say, okay, work equals X number of steps. So let's just say work takes 40 steps. You can take 39 on the Sabbath. You can pick up this, but you can't pick up that. You can do this, but you can't do that. And so they nitpicked every little thing to determine what was work and what wasn't. And they missed the point completely. Jesus came, died, rose from the grave. And now on the other side of the cross, we begin to look back at this thing called Sabbath. And we ask, is there more to it than a day? And the scriptures tell us that there is. Our main text this morning is Hebrews chapter 4. So if you will not, if you're not there, if you will turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 4. I'd like for us to look at Sabbath in light of Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews is unknown. Nobody for sure knows who wrote it. Um, But the point of the author is known. It's obvious to tell. There's really two things. First thing is this. He wants to show us that Christ is supreme. So he shows us that Christ is greater than the angels, Christ is greater than Moses, Christ is the great high priest, Christ is the great apostle, Christ is the means for which the Old Testament was written. It is a magnificent book that helps us look at those things in the Old Testament that are sometimes hard for us to understand, and the author of Hebrews just opens them up, and when we see them, we understand the magnificence that all of this is really teaching us about Jesus. The point of the Old Testament is Jesus. And he goes through, and it's one of those things when you get to reading it, you almost wish you could tap him on the shoulder and it's like, hey, could you tell me about this? Because, okay, this is awesome, but what about, you know, Noah and the flood? Would you explain that a little bit more? Or what about Abraham and Isaac? you explain that a little bit more? Or what about, and then insert whatever Old Testament story, you're like, I don't get this, I don't understand it. You want to ask the author of Hebrews, because he takes everything, and he shows how it's all pointing directly, beeline towards Jesus. And that's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing for us to be reminded that Jesus was not plan B. Jesus didn't happen late in the game. It was about Jesus before everything began. And if that's the case, then we would know that God would be pointing us towards Jesus from the very beginning. And the author of Hebrews helps us to see that. So chapters 3 and 4 of the Old Testament, he really gets to this idea of rest. Um, The author of Hebrews doesn't look at the idea of Sabbath or rest in just particularly a day. 
Here's how he does it. He looks at it in the same way that he looks at these sacrifices for the Old Testament. Now, if you've ever tried to read through Leviticus, Deuteronomy, some of those places, and it starts talking about there's this offering, there's the peace offering, there's the free will offering, there's the sin offering, there's the guilt offering, there's this offering. Some of these you offer bread. Some of these you offer sheep. Some of these you offer turtle doves. Some of these you offer a ram. Some you offer for yourself before you offer for somebody else. And then, you know, and you're just kind of you're like your head's spinning. You're like, I just know I was supposed to kill something. I don't, I don't, I don't, and I don't, I don't understand it. It's so... But the author of Hebrews takes all of that, these individual sacrifices, the big sacrifices, and the very concept of sacrifice, and he pulls it all together in a laser beam, shows us how it points to Jesus. Let me read for you from Hebrews chapter 10. This is what he says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Kind of boil that down. What he says is, there's a reason they continue offered sacrifice year after year after year after year. There was a reminder, one, that they were sinful, and there was a reminder that they needed cleansing for sins. And thirdly, there was a reminder that whatever they did couldn't cleanse them from sins. Because if it had cleansed them completely, no more sacrifices would need to be made. He goes on to say, but Christ, our great high priest, offered himself and then sat down at the right hand of the Father no longer needing to make sacrifices because the sacrifices are finished. So now, knowing this is how he does it, we back up and we look at Sabbaths. Because Sabbath is, remember, the idea of rest. There was a day called the Sabbath that pointed us to God's rest. And I think Calvin is helpful here to help us look at this. He says this, Sabbaths do not please God simply and by themselves. So it's not the point of just taking a day. It's not like, okay, if you just keep the day, everything's great. We know that because as we understand the law, we know that our sinful hearts can't keep the law perfectly. If this is part of the law, just doing it's not enough. So he says, Sabbaths do not please God simply by themselves. We ought, therefore, to look for another purpose if we wish to understand the reason for this precept. And hence Paul says in Colossians 2 that Sabbaths were a shadow of the things of which Christ is the substance. Notice the similar language from Hebrews chapter 10 that the law is a shadow of the things that are to come. You know, if I stand here on the stage and there's a shadow of me cast behind me, if I stand in just the right way, you might be able to guess that it's me. You can know that it's a person, but it's not the fullness. The fullness is standing here. This is why the Bible talks about the Old Testament. It's a shadow. It's, it's just a, a small, slight glimpse of the greatness that is to come. And so we know that Christ is what the shadow is all about. Is this not what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight? Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here's, here's the point that I want you to get in the New Testament. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath. The point of the day, the point of the topic, the point of everything in the Old Testament that pointed towards Sabbath 
was meant to point us to Jesus. The author of Hebrews pulls that out. So if you will, come with me to chapter 4. Chapters 3 and 4, in a lot of ways, a a, uh, commentary on Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a commentary on Exodus 17. So you see, we have the whole scope of the Scriptures here. We go all the way back to the book of Exodus this morning, even by looking at the book of Hebrews. So the first thing I want you to know, the way that he presents this, he really presents it in three ways to show how Jesus is our Sabbath. First is this, God's rest is a gift of grace received by faith. God's grace, God's rest is a gift of grace received by faith. You know, when you're in chapter 3, he points out the fact that the people had rebelled, they didn't listen, and the reason they weren't able to go into the promised land was because of their unbelief. Then we get to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And here's the gospel connection. Get this. Hear what he says. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Here's what he says. Did you notice that there's this intermingling of us and them? And the author of Hebrews doesn't make a distinction in the fact that both of us had the good news come to us. But there's a difference. Those who have heard the good news and believed it receive the benefit. Now, you've got to think back here, and you've got to know what the story it is. It's all about Exodus 17. Exodus 15, which Ben read earlier, was the psalm of Moses right after God had brought them out of Egypt. So get this, they've been in slavery. God brings these massive plagues, shows His glory in that, lifts them up, and draws them out of Egypt. As they're going, Pharaoh and his army, the world superpower of the day, is now following them. They get to the Red Sea. It looks like they're at a dead end, literally. And God says, oh wait, just a second. And parts the Red Sea. They all walk through, every single one of them, walk through on dry land, walls of water on either side. They can hear Pharaoh and his army back behind them. When the last one gets through, the water crashes down, crushing the army. I don't know about you, but you would think that if that happened to you, There'd be no reason to ever doubt about anything. I mean, I'm not sure how many of you have walked through a sea on dry land with walls of water next to you. And we would think that seeing and experiencing that would be the most amazing, life-changing, life-altering thing that ever happened. But you know what? That was Exodus 14, Exodus 15. Moses sings his song. And in Exodus chapter 16, the people say, We're hungry. We're so hungry. I wish we were back in Egypt. Because in Egypt we had food. Do you get that? They're now saying, God, you've done this amazing thing. You've rescued us for yourself. But man, we're hungry. And I'd rather go back to slavery and not be with you so that I could have something for dinner tonight. And we look at them and we're saying, what are you doing? And God brings them food. And they get manna and quail. You know what happens immediately after that? They get thirsty. And they respond in faith, right? No. Again, they come back and say, I wish we were back in Egypt. We have water in Egypt. 
And we look at that and we say, you're ridiculous. You're crazy. You've got God. He parted the Red Sea. He can give you a cup of water. But they were so focused on themselves and their own desires that they rejected God. And they did not believe that He would provide them with food and water, the very smallest things needed for life. And it's at that point in time that God says, you will not enter my rest. Psalm 95 looks back on that. But notice what it says, that they were not united with those by faith who listened. You see, God was not just taking them out of Egypt. He was taking them to a place that He had promised. It was the promised land. It was Israel. He was taking them there. And 12 spies, one from each tribe, set out. And when they went, they saw the most amazing land. Beautiful, plentiful, tons of everything they could ever want. Right there. They come back. They'd seen God part the Red Sea. They'd seen God provide food when there was nothing there. They had seen God provide water from a rock. And they come back. And ten of them say, "Uh Uh-uh, we can't go in. We cannot go in. There's giants over there. We can't defeat those giants. And two of them are like, Y'all are crazy. Do you remember the sea? Joshua and Caleb, they stood up. And what they said was, Of course we can defeat them. God's with them. God's with us. He's right here now. We know that God will do this. And you know what? There were two people out of all of them who made it to the promised land. Joshua and Caleb. Do you know why they made it to the promised land? Because they believed. So here is a warning to us in chapter 1. Because who he's writing to is the entire congregation of Israel. The ones who had seen God, who had heard God, who had experienced God. And even in the midst of that, there were some who did not hear and believe. There's an opportunity for rest for each and every one of us. Beyond a day off, beyond a few hours of sleep, eternal rest and security in the creator of the universe is available to us. And the danger is, the fear is, that we would be around it and hear about it and yet not live in it. I'll talk more about that in a minute. So God's rest is a gift of grace to be received by faith. Also, God's rest is a renewal of His image in us. God's rest is a renewal of His image in us. Notice again in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. As He has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. What in the world is that all about? Well, here's what we have. If we've believed, we enter God's rest. God said they didn't believe, they will not enter His rest. But then, this just amazing thing comes in. Although His works were finished from the foundation of the world, for He is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of His works. Here, here's, what, here's what the author of Hebrews is doing. You know, he's in this train of thought looking at Psalm 95 and he's showing it how what it's all about was helping us come to Jesus to know we need to place our faith in Jesus. And in the middle of this, it's kind of like sometimes you have preachers like they'll have a thought in the middle of a sermon and they'll just kind of let it out. 
And you're like, whoa, 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 where, where were you going with that? Because I wanted to hear the rest of that. But they know that if they keep on doing it, they're going to preach an extra 45 minutes. So they just kind of tuck it away to use it another time. I feel like that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's going and he's showing us to make sure that we get this rest thing. And he just kind of jumps all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and says, yeah, because this whole rest thing, this was God. In the beginning, God rested. This is bigger than just you need salvation. This is something that's even greater. Now we need to think for a minute about why God rested. Why did God rest in Genesis chapter 2? Well, we know that it's not because he was tired or needed a day to catch up. Isaiah chapter 40 makes that clear. God does not grow weary, nor does he faint. He doesn't need anything. He is self-existent. He does not need power. So it was not because God just needed to catch his breath and take a nap. That's not why God rested. But think about this for just a second. Who was it that determined how many days it would take for God to create the world? It was God. So God in his sovereignty could have created the world in two days. God in his sovereignty could have created the world in 12 days. But God in his sovereignty created the world in six days. And then he purposefully added one more day. There's a couple reasons for that. One, I think here's what he's doing. He's setting in motion this whole concept of Sabbath, before the fall, to set us up to point us to Jesus. Now, in case you think I'm coming out of left field with God setting up the gospel before the fall, don't forget that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul looks at marriage, Genesis chapter 2, the exact same chapter, and says that this marriage in Genesis chapter 2 is a picture of Jesus in the church. The fall doesn't happen until Genesis chapter 3. God and his sovereignty was already creating marriage to picture and image forth Jesus in the church, a sign of the gospel for us to see. In God's creation, he is creating in six days and setting aside a day of rest to already begin preparing us to understand we need his rest. You see, the fall didn't catch God by surprise. Adam and Eve, it wasn't like God turned around and went, oh man, what did they do? They messed the whole thing up. Now I've got to figure this out. Stupid Adam. Gee whiz. Jesus, go fix this. That wasn't what happened. Yeah, that's, you know, sanctified imagination there. God, in creating everything sovereignly, even before the fall, get this, get this, don't, don't let this wash over you, don't let this be just a kind of a cool little nugget, no, get this and let it go down deep into your soul, before the fall, Jesus was being exalted, Christ is already being ready to be lifted up in the sight of all creation. Jesus is our Sabbath and God is setting the stage for us to see that and worship Him because of it and know Him greater and understand that rest is fantastic. So God's doing this in creation. But also, and this gets to where I got the wording of my point, God is doing something else. And I think it's along the same lines. But this idea of Sabbath is part of us being made in God's image. Um... Uh, there's a scholar named John Sailhammer who I'll quote here. Um, says, It is also likely that the inspired author intends the reader to understand the account of the seventh day in light of the image of God's theme on the sixth day. 
If the purpose of pointing to the likeness between human beings and their creator is to call on the reader to be more like God, then it is significant that the account of the seventh day stresses that very thing which the writer elsewhere so ardently calls the reader to do. Rest. You see, in God setting this trajectory for us to know and love Him, even in light of us being made in His image, He stresses day six, in His image, in His image, in His image. God rested, God rested. He made it holy and He rested. There's a connection here. And so now... In the gospel, according to Paul in Colossians 3, 9 through 10, he says, don't lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Part of our salvation process is renewing the image of God in us, making us more like Jesus, that we reflect him the way that we were intended to. And so now as we look back on God creating everything, making this day of rest, part of it is that we must look at that and say, if this is part of being made in the image of God, then I need to know how this looks like in my life. And if that's true, this has gospel implications, this has everyday implications that we'll get to in just a minute. The last thing I want us to know from Hebrews chapter 4 is this. And I want to say this, I, there's so many verses here that if we were to unpack everything in every one of these verses, we'd be here for weeks um, but the last thing I want to know is God's rest is not attainable by human effort. God's rest is not attainable by human effort. Looking at verse 7, he says this. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, here's what the reader's doing. He's understanding this. This is a bigger picture than Israel. It's a bigger picture than a Sabbath day because what he points out is he says, hey, now look, here's what I want you to know. Psalm 95 was written by David. David happened a long time after them. So if the Holy Spirit through David brings up this day today, it's bigger than the Israelites. He points out today. And then he goes on to prove his point. He says in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Because you see, as they went into the promised land, Joshua chapter 21, 44 through 45 says this, And the Lord God gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Notice the very first part of that, And the Lord God gave them rest. So they fought, they did what God told them to do. They came into the land... And yet they did not receive rest. Why? Because David, so many years later, is saying, strive to enter God's rest. Again, he's saying this is not a human effort. This is not something that just by them going through the motions they could achieve and receive. There's something even bigger than this. Our rest comes from turning from our works and placing our faith completely in Jesus. I don't want to belabor the point, but I think that as we see this, it's a gift of God received by faith. It's being renewed in the image of God, not attainable by our own works. Now, I pray that if you've been here, if you've been in church, or if you've been everywhere, you would understand that that in so many ways is the words of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, took the wrath that we deserved. 
We could not do it ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves good enough before God. We couldn't clean ourselves up enough. Everything good we did was only even worse because we're tainted by sin. And yet God sent Christ while we were still his enemies. God loved us, demonstrated his love, and sent Christ to die for us. And how do we receive that? By working really hard? By striving? By doing everything we can? No. By resting in the work that Christ has done for us on the cross. So how do we apply this? What does this look like? All right? There's four things I want you to do. Think about. First one. When we read about the Sabbath, rejoice in Jesus. Now this is just a, a very plain and simple thing for those who are in Christ to do and think about. As you're studying your Bible, you're reading the Old Testament, even you're reading the New Testament, all throughout you will find this word sprinkled everywhere across. You will find the Sabbath and you'll start looking at all of this stuff. And when we see that word, our eyes should go directly to Jesus. He is our Sabbath. We don't have to earn anything. We don't have to keep anything. We're secure in Him. And just as God finished from His works, if we are in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation. For the law of the Spirit of life has done what the law of sin and death could not do. He sent His Son in the likeness of simple flesh so that we could be redeemed. This is rest. This is gospel living. This is understanding. There's nothing you can do to earn, keep, or improve your salvation. Nothing. And yet it also shows us that we live out of that rest. God has done this. We are secure. We don't have to earn anything. We just get to live in the freedom of the glory of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Now, how can we live in such a way that we display His infinite worth to the entire world? Because I don't have to earn anything. I'm resting in Him. So when we read Sabbath, we need to turn our eyes completely, 100% to Jesus. Second thing is this. We must recognize that our sinful hearts rebel against the idea of Sabbath. Now this is um, this, what I like to call, I'm about to crawl up on your front porch here, maybe. So if I do, know that this is not personal. Um, this is actually just a little, little background here. Um, I don't like preaching unless I feel like God has really pressed this upon my heart myself. Uh, my family and I were on vacation this past week. And um, sometimes it's hard for me to take days off on vacation. I love being with my family. It's not hard because I don't want to be with my family. I love being with them. But so many times if I take a day off or something, I'm already I'm thinking about what do we need to do in the fall, what do we need to do, and just all this stuff all centered around work. And so even though I'm not physically there, my mind is still going about it. And so as I got to thinking about this idea of Sabbath, knowing this vacation was coming up, I, I purposely did some things. Um, I, I didn't look at my phone near as much. Because my phone's not just the phone. You, you know, y'all, a lot of y'all know what I'm talking about. It's got email and all other kinds of stuff on it. Things that draw me back into work. Now, unfortunately, I looked at it more than I thought I was going to. But I purposely set that thing aside. Why? Because I was trying to live out what I was about to encourage you to do. But it was hard at times. And so there's really two ways that our hearts rebel against Sabbath. 
And they kind of show themselves in polar opposites. The first is an active rebellion. And that's one that is rampant in our culture. And it's the idea of overworking. We have this mindset that work defines us. Think about it. When you meet somebody, what is usually the second question they ask you? The first question is, what is your name? Secondly, what do you do? We're in, a, we're in a, a time and place where we are defined by what we do. And some of us latch on to that. So much so that work consumes us. So much so that that smartphone gets more time than your family or your Lord and Savior. And so, when this idea of Sabbath comes up, we say, I would take some time to rest, but you don't understand. The question I have to ask you is, if you say, but you don't understand, my question is, why is that so much more important than obeying Jesus? Now I know, we're going to talk, I'm going to talk in just a minute about some times, and I know this is hard, so just hang with me here. We, we, we are easy to do this. So much so that many times we're even in church, and I'm guilty of this, I'm preaching to myself right now, that we, we, sit in, we sit in church, and as we're listening to the Word of God, or we're singing praises, we're doing it with our mouth, or doing it with our ears, but our hearts are not engaged because our minds are asking, what do I need to do tomorrow? Who do I need to call? How do I need to do this? I know what we could do. If we did this, I could make this much more money. And so our minds, even in a time that we are supposed to have set aside for Jesus, are gone to work. Here's, here's, here's the, the danger and the problem with that. When work is that important to us, what we tell the world is that our security and our worth and our definition comes from job and not from Jesus. And if it comes from Jesus, then we'll take a step down the corporate ladder to have Jesus than to have a few extra dollars that you're not really going to spend because you've got to work to buy the vacation home that you'll never use because you're working so hard. But see, there, there's another polar opposite. That's active. And everybody's like, yeah, I see that. That's right. Stop overworking. Well, some of the people who are like, yeah, stop overworking have gone the passive rebellion round. Sabbath, I'm resting. I ain't working. That's good. Got me a part-time job. Ten hours a week. I can pay the bills. Don't need nothing else. I'm going to sit back and do nothing the rest of the day. Do you know that the concept of Sabbath you need to be working so that you take a break. I mean, I, I, mean I, I, I was afraid that might be a little too obvious, but let's just kind of lay that out there. You don't take a break from taking a break. And just, so, just in case, I mean, and, I, and I don't, I'm still getting to know most of you, so I don't know if there's anybody in this room who has this issue or not. I, I don't know. But, you know, a couple of times in the Bible, some things Paul says, things like this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This one's not exactly, you know, this one's like geared towards thieves, but I think you'll see where this is going. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. And then Paul, um, this one's a pretty good one. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. That's just crazy. You know, every now and then Paul pulls one of those things out and he's like, if there's somebody in your church who's lazy, don't hang around them. They're like, come on, Paul. Seriously? Don't hang around them? They're fun. No. They're bringing reproach on the name of Jesus because they're mooching off everybody else. And they're not pouring themselves into the things that God has given them to do so that they might share with others, so that they might support the work of the ministry, so that they might glorify Jesus. This is what Paul says. For yourselves know that we, you are how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it but with toil and labor we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For when we were with you we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work let him not eat. I mean that's... I mean, that's Plain and simple. So what we have here are really the two polar extremes of reaction to this idea of Sabbath. One, no God, I, I get it, I understand, I really like that that's Old Testament because I feel like I can ignore it and just pour everything into work when God says, no, it's not Old Testament, this is the rest we find in Christ. Are you living and treasuring and understanding the gospel so much that you're not defined by your paycheck, by your work, but that you'd rather show the world Jesus instead of getting the next promotion. But then he's also saying, work. Take your Sabbath, but work. Strive. Now, I know, I know lots of people who, who want to work. They just can't find a job. They've turned in 600 applications in the past two years. I know people that are like that. That's not what Paul's talking to. Paul's talking to the people who'd rather just live off other people. He says, you're bringing reproach to the name of Christ, and that comes in both of these. So let us display the gospel by properly sabbathing and working hard second one is this third one i guess we must be intentional about engaging in sabbath notice even by me saying that i, I i'm i'm laying the cards on the table that I, if if the sabbath is about jesus it's not an old testament thing that we need to ignore so we must move forward in this in light of jesus so what do i mean well i'm not saying to return to law and I'm, I'm not saying we need to just have more times for ourselves. Because here's the danger. Without really going into what Sabbath means, what we could say is, okay, it's just a time of rest, so I just need to take a vacation day once a month. And that, that, that's good. That's good. That's the first step of intentionality. But remember what the Sabbath was for. It was not simply so they could sleep in. Remember that it was to turn their eyes back to the one who sanctifies them, the one who makes them holy. And so we do this not just so we can do a checklist and say, okay, we, we, okay I, I took a Sabbath. We set aside time and we say, okay, I need to do this. And in this time, I want to fix my eyes on Jesus and those things which Jesus has given me which point people to him. So case in point, I brought up the idea of vacation this past week. I don't have a hard time taking vacation. I like going to the beach. It's fun. 
But oftentimes I could take that week, and if, if I'm wanting to use it as Sabbath, I can take that week and I can make it all about Jack. So it's me getting to take naps, it's me getting to sleep in, it's me not working, it's me not, me not, me not, me not. And that's good, I need to take rest. So again, as I was contemplating this, it's amazing how God used this to like change my vacation. I started thinking about the fact that God had given me a wife that I love tremendously. And so I asked God during this Sabbath time, God, how do I love her better? How do I reflect the gospel in my relationship with her? And I looked at my three precious little boys and I looked at them and said, God, I love them. I want to be a daddy that points them to Jesus. So even now, God, right now, as we're playing in this pool or we're on the beach, God, I'm tempted to turn this Sabbath time into just me time. God, how do I pour into them that I might display the love of the Father to them, that they would know what it is to have a Father that loves them, that I might turn their eyes to Jesus, that they would know and love you. You see, it wasn't just about taking a break. It's about saying, being intentional and saying, how do I use this? How does God take this and mold my heart that I love the gospel and display the gospel and live the gospel more? Because I think you'll agree with me, if we're living and we're striving after this, it's difficult, and we need times to fall back and regroup. And God, in His gracious, gracious, gracious sovereignty, has put it in place. Now, there's some people that this is very hard for. And I'm not talking about, like, personality types. Stay-at-home moms. My wife has, like, the four hardest jobs in the world. Number one is being married to me. She, I get to go home from work. Her life is her work. So my question is, if it's important for her to intentionally Sabbath, how do I help her do that? How do I lead in such a way that I give her the opportunity to do that? And some of you are stay-at-home moms, and you feel overwhelmed because it just doesn't stop. You need to be intentional. And husbands... I challenge you the same thing I challenged myself with this morning as I was praying through this. And God laid this on my heart this morning. How can you help your wife intentionally rest that she might turn her eyes towards Jesus and being the woman that God has called her to be? That is part of you leading in a way that exalts Jesus and shows her Love the way Jesus loves the church. You know, some other people this is hard for, people who work hourly. Because you say, if I don't go to work, I don't get paid. I get that. And I'm not telling you to quit your job. I'm not telling you just to start working half time. But what I'm saying is, if this is intentional and it's important and you want to live the gospel, showing God you trust Him completely for everything, for food, for housing, for life, for breath, for heaven, for Jesus. You trust Him for everything. And He has said, this is good, and I love you, and I'm giving this as a gift of grace to you. And what we say is, okay, God, I'm going to step out on faith and figure out how this looks in my life. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe you own a business. And so it's not just the weight on your shoulders that I've, this business is here. But you've got people who work for you. And if work doesn't get done, 
you don't get paid and they don't get paid and the business goes under and then you've got a mess. Well, you know what? Who gave you the business? Who gives you the strength to do what you do? Who wakes you up in the morning? Supplies you with bread? Who is the one who does all of this? Does He not love you more than to let you just go by the wayside for obeying Him? And we can come up with multiple, multiple, multiple instances, but you get this. There are some times that this is difficult and say, all right, I know I need to do this, but God, it's going to be difficult. And in doing this, you're setting yourself up for saying, Jesus, I trust you for everything. Last thing is this. We should strive to enter His rest. That's what He says in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Sounds almost oxymoronic. Strive to enter the rest. The the author of Hebrews has a very pastoral heart. Because he doesn't take for granted that the people reading the letter have a genuine relationship with Jesus. The last thing that he wants is for people to hear the word, have a mental belief to it, but not really trust it. That's why in verse 1 he says, let us fear, in case any of us have missed it. In verse 11, let us strive. That striving is not trying to earn God's forgiveness and acceptance and God's rest. It's for saying, I know that my heart is sinful. And so I must, Romans 8, 13, mortify sin in my flesh every day by the Spirit. So what is it that causes you to stumble and not trust Jesus completely? Or, this morning, as a gift of God's marvelous grace, He has allowed you to hear of His rest. And He's allowed you to hear of His Son. And of the beautiful sacrifice given on our behalf. And is this morning His act of grace to call you out and to say, Trust me. Forsake everything else. Give it all up and trust only in Jesus. Right now. Not just for heaven, but for life right now. Because what the gospel tells us is that God loves us and we can have His rest now and we can worship Him fully and know Him more and more and more every single day. So is God calling you out this morning? If so, I would like to offer up this simple prayer. And a simple request to you that you would not leave this place before you say, Jesus, I want to I trust you. There are people here, whoever, whoever you came with, whoever invited you, myself, Fudd, somebody around here. You just look at them and say, you know, I need to trust Jesus. I'm not resting fully in him. Maybe you need to spend some time praying. We're about to move into a time of worship. Maybe you just need to, to sit there for a few minutes and just rest.
take a few minutes and think about all the things that you put in front of Jesus and say, Lord, I confess that I'm not resting in you. So would you take me now and show me what this is going to look like and grant me the grace to do it. I want to pray with you. Um, I'll be down here at the front. Fud's in the back. Um, Love to talk with you, pray with you if you need prayer. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you don't give arbitrary commands. God, I thank you that you don't just make stuff up because you think it'd be fun to watch us do it. God, in your infinite goodness and your grace and mercy, you give us commands that draw us to Jesus, that give us yourself. And God, I admit that my heart so many times doesn't respond to those commands in that way. And I pray, Lord, that I would trust your commands deeper and more passionately and more fully every day. And God, I pray for our fellowship that we would be a people who rest in Jesus. Not just in theory, not just in this concept. Um, God, that we would show that we rest in Jesus with our lives. So Lord, show us how we might reflect the gospel in this simple yet profound way. We give you honor and glory in Christ's name.